So hello everyone. Um, I'd just like to thank you all very much for coming to uh, Liberty Now. Um, you know, uh, we when we decided to launch this thing about I don't know six eight months ago, we're like, hey, let's do something. You know, let's, let's see if there's anybody out there who's actually interested in these ideas. Um, and it seems there are. So uh, again, a round of applause for yourselves. First large sort of. Like, yeah. Have you ever been to an event like this in Canada yet? So there you go. Uh, land of liberty, home of free, and the parade, and all that kind of jazz. Um, so, show of hands, who wants to do something afterwards? We're trying to figure that out. Who wants to go out? So, might we just stand here and get pizzas and keep talking? Uh, yeah, or we might just see if we can find a bar or something like that. Uh, <laughs> the alcoholics on that side. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Everything, everything, everything gets a lot uh, easier. Um, anyways, and just a quick little thing. Uh, so we are, this will be a yearly event, uh, and hopefully this can be the beginning of, um, you know, sort of starting to spread these ideas in a great way across the country. So anybody, after these events are over, I'm going to email everybody if everybody wants to just help out. If anybody can help out with spreading these ideas, um, helping to organize these things, um, talking to people you know, you know, all these sorts of things that can be get going on this. Um, and then next week we've got the uh, Toronto Austrian Scholars Conference is coming up. Uh, also this is the first event in Canada that's going to be focused on specifically the, the Austrian School of Economics. It's going to be held here at uh, University of Toronto. Again, um, tickets are, uh, we're, and we're going to have Joe Salerno who is the Academic Vice President of of the uh, Mises Institute uh, down in Auburn, Alabama, is going to be here speaking. We're going to have Cal Kelly as well. He's a financial sort of guru guy. He's going to be talking about monetary mechanics and these sorts of things. They'll explain to you why you can't ever buy a house ever, ever, ever. <laughs> and otherwise, uh, we're, we've managed to get out of the woodwork all of the, uh, at least the ones we could find, all of the Austrian school economists uh, in Canada. Who knew they were here? <laughs> Around, sort of suffering under the Marxism. Um, so, anyways, uh, yeah. So I think that's about it. Uh, and then otherwise, uh, I guess we just like to obviously introduce uh, Stefan Molino, who, funnily enough, uh, I found this guy, and I was like, this guy's Canadian. I was like, what's going on? Who knew? And you know what I mean? And speaking all over the United States, and of course, he he, he sort of told me uh, that uh, I guess there was a personal anecdote that. Was going to all these liberty conferences in the United States and saying, you know, hey, I'm going to be in Canada. Canada? What? But anyway, so uh, we'll, well, I'll let him tell it himself and spend all new of uh, Freedom Aid Radio. Pleasure. Thank you, everybody, so much for coming out. And uh, Redmond, uh, thank thank you so much for putting this together. I've run a conference or two in my life. Can we just get a little hand? <laughs> So um, I have a new theory, and I wanted to run it by you, and, and you can tell me what you think. Now, I, I, you know, it's we all had our carbs. It's afternoon. I know we're all propped up a little bit with coffee, but um, if, yeah, I'm trying to keep it lively. So if you have questions or comments as I go through, I throw myself off all the time, so don't worry about disrupting the train of thought. So let's try and keep it as, as a dialogue, but I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you the theory. It's quite an interesting one. And I'm going to do with reference to three things. I'm um, sorry I tried to get as much CanCon as I could, but... Uh, this is uh, in reference to DDT, uh, FDA, and the 
Cuyahoga River. We're going to tie it all together in one lovely bundle. So my theory is something like this. In the Middle Ages, you didn't get a lot of complaints about child labor. Like if you read, I did this whole course on medieval literature because I have no sense of economic value. And, uh, and in it, we read a whole bunch of stuff about the Middle Ages, as you would expect. And I don't remember one theologian or, or political scientist or writer ever talking about how terrible it was that the five-year-old children had to labor in the fields. Does anyone have a guess as to why it was not? And now, of course, remember how the government saved us all from having child labor, uh, because there was no government in the Middle Ages, interestingly enough. But, um, uh, why, why do you think they've never talked about child labor? Yes, sir? Because if you want to survive, you need Yes, that's valid. I'm sorry, just because I don't know your names, I'm going to refer to you as, as celebrities. So I think Robertson Davies is actually correct in the back there. Um, it's because there was absolutely no alternative. Right? Everybody had to work. I mean, in the European population in the Middle Ages, like 10% of the population in any given year would die of starvation. You could have like plenty here and literally 10 miles away people could be starving to death. There was no trade. The medieval guilds controlled everything and it was a terrible system as serfs were bought and sold to the land. Terrible system overall. So they didn't talk about child labor because it wasn't an issue. Right? So if somebody now lives to be 100, we say, what a great ripe old life he had. You know, that's good. Now imagine there's some pill that we can take that makes us live to 300. Some guy dies at 100, we're like, oh man, that guy died young. Right? When you change the scope, something that was not a problem before now becomes a problem. And I can make the case that this is a foundation, foundational problem of statism that is exacerbated by statism. So child labor, of course, only became an issue in the sort of mid to late 19th century. Right? Dickens and, and you know, there was this general sentimentality around not stuffing your six-year-olds up chimneys and so on for reasonable reasons. But it only became an issue because it was possible for children to not work because of the accumulated wealth that um, was gathered in Europe in the 19th century. End of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815 to the start of World War I. In 1914, with the exception of some Prussian nonsense, there was almost no, there was no war in Western Europe, which had never occurred before. And then, brainiacs as they were, they took the entire accumulated wealth of the Industrial Revolution and blew it up in France in the First World War. Do you know, almost to a dollar, all the wealth that was created in the 19th century was destroyed in the First World War. It was the most fundamental catastrophe because it laid the stage for everything that came after. So when enough wealth had been gathered that it was no longer necessary for children to work, and of course parents generally are quite favorably disposed towards their children and like them not being in chimneys, breathing black smoke. So when it was possible to take kids out of the factories and out of the chimneys, then suddenly it became an issue because it was possible. And... This, I think, is a very interesting phenomenon. When you look at poverty, right, in the, uh, after the Second World War... Um, no. Okay, okay, my first tangent, first official tangent. Um, do you know, um, there's this myth, right? Hey, we can all recite this in our sleep, right? What caused the crash of 1929? Free, free, no, that, not, that's oh, a little uh, The free market exuberance, right, uh, and, and irrational greed and all that, you know, caused the crash of 1929, and then the free market was unable to solve it somehow was able to solve the crash of 1920, which was actually even worse, but it was not able to solve it, and then the government came in and then tried to rescue everything, and finally, what ended the Great Depression for the free market and made everything okay again? The war, because we all know that blowing stuff up makes you so rich. Um, I used to have this fantasy. I'm not recommending you do it. I had an economics professor who was talking a lot about, you know, the broken window fallacy, we all know it, and you know, 
He's like, you know, war is good for the economy because you've got to rebuild stuff. I just wanted to go. I didn't, but I wanted to go out in the parking lot with Keith, find his car, and give him a raise like this. Squee! He'd come out. What are you doing? I'm donating to your wealth. <laughs> Actually, I mean, because in the, in the post-war period, a lot of the... Um, fascistic and socialistic and, and Marxist controls that were put in in the 1930s were done. They were gone. And, and the, you know, there's this Marshall Plan is credited with rescuing because every government program takes success for voluntarism, right? But they, they were credited with rescuing Europe uh, at the end of the Second World War. It's nonsense. The economic recovery was already way underway before any of that money was spent, right? It's always a day late and a dollar short with every government program known to man. And Germany, of course, had the good luck to have an incredibly free market finance minister who was dedicated to Hayekian and just liberalized everything, which is why Germany is now paying off Greece, because <laughs> freedom makes you change when there's a state around, right? And um, so in the after the Second World War, when all of these status controls were taken away, poverty was, I mean, the ancient dream of mankind. You look in the Bible, they're like, oh, the poor will always be with us, always underfoot, always hanging onto your leg, begging for money. At the end of the Second World War, you could see it declining. And these are even by government statistics. One percentage point every single year, poverty was being eliminated. It was incredible. And so suddenly, poverty became a huge problem that needed to be solved by the state, right? Because the free market was solving it. We were within probably about 20 years of having no involuntary poverty. You could be a monk or a student or a podcaster, but you <laughs> that's in order of descending wealth. <laughs> but, but we were within like 20 years of actually not having poverty for the first time ever in human history. Statistically, it was going to be done. And so suddenly, everybody thinks that poverty needs to be eliminated. And this is where we get the big social programs that come in in the 1960s, right? LBJ's Great Society, Massive Income uh, Redistribution, Socialized Medicine in Canada. <laughs> you know what? Okay, the second hand. You know what bugs me most about the socialized medicine thing? Is that the first generation of socialized medicine got such an incredible deal. They didn't have to pay any taxes because it was all funded through debt and all that. And they inherited a free market system paid for by the government. That's the best. Because it takes about a generation for things to get crappy. Because, you know, you've got a bunch of doctors they're used to caring for their patients and stuff, right? house calls and all that kind of stuff. And they still don't look just, oh, government's taken over. I'm going to just not do it anymore, right? It takes a, you remember NASA? They sent a man to the moon. In, what did it take? Eight years to do that? I think from when Kennedy first talked about it in the early 60s to 69. It's just an incredible technological feat. Why? Because these guys were all pillaged from the free market, the engineers, right? And what happened since then? There's, there's a meme that's floating around the internet, right, which is like, Technology in 1980, and then a cell phone the size of like an ottoman <laughs> that you actually had to stand outside and point at the satellite and follow it while you talked. <laughs> and they had like a computer that went from one of these, you know, monster brick things to something you can sew into your eyeball or something like that. And then they had a picture of the space shuttle, and then they had a picture of the space shuttle. <laughs> nothing had changed, right? Because once, like, for the first generation, this is why statism is so addictive, because that first generation, the taxes don't go up because they're all funded through debt and deficits and, and, and printing money and so on. And they, they inherit all of the expertise and the resource allocation precision of the free market where prices and, and ambition and entrepreneurship drove everything. And it's like, it's like watching a movie and it slowly goes out of focus. You know, the first half of the movie is great and it's like, whoa, what the hell? And then at the end you can't see a thing, but that's what happens with the socialized stuff. This is why it works so well for the first generation and then later on it's like, 
what kind of dunghill was this? Why did anyone vote this in? Well, because for them, I mean, it was super cool. It was fantastic. Free market, no money. Woo! And we're in. But see, you remember in, in, in America too, and I don't know what the name of it is here, the Occupational Health and Safety Administration, what is the, you should know this. Yeah, okay, so they're really interested in industrial accidents because they really want to protect their citizens, right? This came in in the 1960s, early 1970s, when they were still drafting people. Really worried about industrial accidents, we're sending you to Vietnam. <laughs> Only in a state of society could that make any sense at all. We don't want you trust by machinery. We'd rather have you blown up by landmines. Uh, but of course, industrial accidents were going down hugely before this stuff came in. And it only became a problem because it was being solved. This, does this make any sense at all? Yeah. Good. Okay, three nods. I'll take that. Yes, sir. Yeah, would it be possible to extend these, like, to, uh, something to substantiate these with so that we can have these... Oh, I'm sorry, substantiation? No, um, I work on the internet. <laughs> To substantiate the internet, you go back to the Pony Express. That's what we have to do next. Sorry, go. So, so, so my point was just like, I, a lot of these things I've heard, but like, look, I can't cite a conference that I went to. Um, and I often find like, people just don't believe the like, temperatures. Like, oh, that accidents were declining? I mean, right. Or like that uh, child labor. I tell you what, I will, send, I will create a, 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 I will create a, a sh- I've got this, this slide, so I'll create a slideshow. I'll send it to everyone through Redmond after the show. So you, you know, send it because. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Now I've just got to make up some data. No, I'll do it. <laughs> so much easier. Um, and so, look, uh, did, uh, so I recently had a debate with this guy, Sam Cedar. Yeah. Uh, did anyone? Yes. Yeah. He's a nice guy in some ways, an unfortunate voice. He sounds a little bit like the Swedish chef. Maybe. <laughs> but anyway, uh, a, a nice guy, but he's such a statist, he doesn't even know that there's such a thing as the word statist. And. He, he brought up this Cuyahoga River. Did you guys know this story? The river was on fire. There were songs about it. And then they had to have the EPA because, right? So, um, so there are three things that you know when you hear about a huge failure like this, right? The river was on fire. Okay, so here's audience participation. What's the first thing you know when somebody brings up that example? I actually brought it up in the debate. When there's collective pollution, let's say, what's the first thing you know? Government owns the river, which means nobody owns the river, right? What, oh, now, let's say that's one, and, and what's the second one? Sorry? I think that's another way of saying what, what he said. The free market polluted it. The free market polluted it? That's your second guess? Yeah, okay. I wouldn't necessarily guess that. It's certainly if the government owns it, right, then they, they would, you know, probably would be easier to pollute it. The second thing that you know... Uh, is that the legal remedies were not permitted to operate. Right? Is that clear? I mean, I, I'll give you some examples. I, I do have a fact. I brought it. Oh, no, that's my name. <laughs> fact free from here on in. Yay. Here's my tearaway pants. Come on now. Um, sorry. Just sorry for the image. Um, take a moment. <laughs> Mentally scrub right here. So, um, so the, the second thing you know is that uh, the legal remedies are being blocked by the state because, you know, somebody puts oil on your beach, you, you sue them for property damage, right? I mean, that, that's common law as old as uh, ancient Rome. So you know that the common law is not being allowed to operate. And I would argue the third thing you know is that the problem is much less bad than it used to be because it's now a problem, right? Like I read this um, um, article the other day where they said, you know, cancer rates have tripled since 1900. 
which is great news. It is, because cancer only usually hits you when you're old. Which means that they're saying when you had a lifespan of, what, 45 in 1900, you didn't get cancer as much as a population because you didn't live long enough to get it. <laughs> cancer is a sign of health. It's, it's weird. It's, statistically, it's true, right? I mean, most cancers, if you die at 40, you don't get cancer. You die at 80, you might, right? So, uh, so, so cancer is a problem because we're doing well, right? So, so I did some research to test this theory, right? I thought, why not try it first time? And so did some research in the Cuyahoga River. So it's in Cleveland. Anyone ever been to Cleveland? What? What? Why? I'd like one person. What are you all doing in Cleveland? What? Baseball? Yeah. Okay, so that's your little status patriotism like shot in the side. Your guilty pleasure. Okay, got it. Anyone else? Why? Well, okay, so from from Cleveland I can understand. I mean you don't know where you are when the stork drops, it's just what happens, right? Rock Hall of Fame? Yeah, all right. I've never been there, so naturally I consider it completely unimportant. Sorry? I should go, it's very nice. Really? Lots of places to go in the world. Are you really saying I should put Cleveland right up there? Mount Vesuvius, Asian Rome, Tahiti, Bali. Cleveland? Really, that's where I'm going. I really like it. I have a lot of friends here, so. Okay, so just give me their names and I'll go. All right. Because uh, if it's a recommendation, I want to pay for a hotel, that's all I'm saying. So. So, so in Cleveland, believe it or not, pretty much the river was always on fire. No, seriously, like since the mid-19th century, fires were constant uh, on the Cuyahoga River, uh, and, and like bad fires. So then in 1969, there was a fire, and it got national news. Right? Everybody just went insane. The rivers are burning. Sorry? No, no, that's another status lie, and we'll get to that another time then. Um, and, and it was a pretty bad fire, right? So this uh, debris uh, caught fire under a bridge and apparently uh, flames shot five stories into the air, which gave me an idea for the opening of my presentation, but Redmond's all like fire codes, man. <laughs> Fascist. <laughs> come on, you don't need your eyebrows the first three rows. Anyway, so we went with confetti cannons. I'll come later. But uh, so there was this constant fire on Cuyahoga River. There was one in, in um, 1952 that caused like a million and a half dollars worth of property damage, and all the people were like, they went insane. Like, we've got to clean this river up. It's crazy. Now, when Time ran the story in 1969 about the fire on the Cuyahoga River, uh, I know this is going to take a moment to reorient yourself. They completely misrepresented it. Um, the fire was out so quickly, it was out within half an hour, so there were no photographs there. Nobody got there in time, because it was pretty minor. I mean, it flared up, and they put it out, and all was fine, right? So they ended up printing uh, a picture of the 1952 fire, which was huge and terrifying, and saying, fire on the Cuyahoga, just last week. Of course, you know, it's the wrong picture and all that kind of stuff. But everybody kind of went insane, and it's like there's a huge problem to be solved. And so there you get the EPA. This is credited with, this is what uh, my debate partner uh, in this conversation was talking about that this was responsible for the EPA and the Clean Water Act of 1972 and so on. So, the Cuyahoga River was much cleaner than it used to be. The fires were diminishing considerably. In fact, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, don't you love that name? I love that name of the newspaper. That, that, I would give Cleveland credit for because that is a very great name. Uh, so the, the Cleveland Plain Dealer was, was, had a whole article rejoicing the return of fish to the river. Uh, in, in like 1960 or something like that, like almost 10 years before this fire. So it was really, really being cleaned up. But why was it taking so long? Why was it so slow? Oh, yes, what's the fourth thing you know when there's an environmental catastrophe? The government is most likely the biggest polluter. 
right? So who runs sewage in Cleveland? Government, right? <laughs> Go straight in, right? And uh, so the government is the biggest polluter. The Army Corps of Engineers also would just, I don't know, like just open up gangrenous bags of filth over the river on a regular basis and all that. And so the government was the biggest polluter. The, they, they interfered with the operation of common law in a very easy way. And so if you were a polluter in Cleveland uh, in the 1960s, you would apply to the state for a permit, right? Because for every law, you have to create an exception. If you can't create an exception, what's the point of passing a law? You can't sell the law to people. You can sell exemptions to people, right? Remember Obamacare went in? What's the first thing the Democratic Party started doing? Handing out exemptions and waivers, and you don't have to comply. Thousands of them all strangely clustered around Democratic <laughs> holdings. Uh, it's weird coincidence that. Um, and so what, ha- what happened is the, the state would grant permits to uh, people to pollute. And the permits were like crazy. Like basically if there was one part of water in your oil, you were fine. <laughs> and and the, the permits had a little waiver. And the, the waiver was, if you comply with this permit, you cannot be sued for any public nuisance. Immunity from law through government waiver. But it's a free market problem, you see. <laughs> so the government grants people the right, to, it's a permit to pollute, and, and it grants you immunity from any common law remedy for polluting this river. And so the idea that the Cuyahoga River was some sort of a justification for an expansion of state power is ridiculous. The government owned it. <laughs> the government controlled it. There was, in fact, a law that went in that said it was illegal to discharge oil into the Cuyahoga River, which, of course, they've also classified as an industrial waste pond rather than a public waterway so that it could escape the feds. Anyone guess what the fine was for dumping oil into the Cuyahoga River? Ten bucks. You are a genius. It is, in fact, ten dollars. And this is back when ten dollars meant... Logical. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was ten dollars. Uh, now, in the 60s, of course, ten dollars was like four thousand dollars, something like that. <laughs> but not a lot for an, an industrial concern. So uh, this, this is an important thing. And I, you know, I, I know I'm sort of chasing the horse a little bit here, but I, I wanted to sort of point out that the pollution was getting much, much better. As, as Redmond mentioned, right, I mean, we start worrying about pollution when we're not worrying about cholera. You know, when we're not worrying about infant mortality, we start worrying about pollution. And also, we start worrying about pollution when we live long enough for the effects of pollution to make a difference, right? I mean, if everyone dies at 30 from a toothache, who cares about black lung that kills you when you're 50? Right? You, you want to get your teeth fixed or something like that. That's what, so you have to live long enough for the accumulated toxins to be important to you. So you have to extend longevity before pollution becomes something you're really that concerned about. Again, we all want clean air, clean water, but we also want stuff. Uh, so the two can sometimes be a little bit in opposition. So I think the illustration of the Cuyahoga River is an illustration of how when things get better, suddenly there's considered to be a huge problem. And uh, I'll give you... Um, do you have any questions about that so far? Comments? Criticism? Can you think of any other examples of where things are getting much better and suddenly they become a big problem that justifies state expansion? Anybody, anybody. <laughs> All together now. Okay, sorry, you were saying? What about bullying? Bullying. Yes, we care so much about the children and we will sell them off to the Chinese for the sake of uh, getting a couple of one to bribe voters in the here and now, but we're really concerned about the children's well-being. We'll sell them off with national debts and so on, and we'll put them in these terrible public schools where the 50% dropout rate, even in Canada, and where they learn nothing but propaganda and they get no economic value whatsoever. We keep them locked in there so they don't compete with older people uh, for jobs that 
could be done by younger people, uh, but we're really concerned about bullying. Well, of course, my first suggestion would be stop forcing them to go into schools, stop pay- making their parents pay for those schools at gunpoint, and stop having crap teachers. You know, teachers almost universally, I think with the exception of the guy's wife who we talked about earlier. <laughs> oh, it's work in the crowd, baby. Uh, they come from like the bottom 20% of all students. It's like, oh, I'm a teacher. <laughs> you just carve that bottom 10%. Ooh, they're going to become teachers, right? Which is the exact opposite. You want the best people teaching, not the worst. So, yeah, I mean, if we were really concerned about bullying, then we'd look at all this kind of stuff. And, of course, you know, as I mentioned before, 80 to 90% of parents hitting their children. Maybe we could focus on that rather than uh, I got a bad text message or something. But, yeah, there is this hysteria, and it's used to, you know, scare the parents, control the internet and all that kind of stuff and I would say that and child, uh, the treatment of children of course has gotten measurably better in many measures over time so of course this now is a big problem because things are generally getting better oh almost ran out of it next we, we had some other I think Canada that may be a bit broad <laughs> Canada is a problem that was almost solved in that terrorism right right terrorism of course is is I don't know let's see time to do this well, I mean, you know, the statistics are pretty clear that, that between 20 and 30 million people across the world have died as a result of U.S. imperialism since the end of the Second World War. Uh, that's a lot. That's almost a whole World War II right there. You know, that's six to eight times the Holocaust. And um, yet, you know, it's this crazy stuff uh, that people fly in planes and all that. Um, There's a law enforcement guidelines in the U.S. now. That include on the terrorist watch list um, military veterans and people who support the Constitution. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I don't. I don't doubt that at all. Uh, in fact, yeah, I think that they, if you find somebody who quotes the Constitution when you pull them over, you are you know take the safety off. That's what their approach is. <laughs> he may know his rights. Watch out for him. <laughs> yeah. If he doesn't say anything other than. Ah! <laughs> He's in trouble, right? Uh, sorry, we didn't. Sorry, car safety? Car safety. Oh, I love that one. Seatbelt laws. One of the most dangerous things ever put in place. Anyone know the story? Oh, it's not a tangent. It's, it's not a tangent. It's an audience question. Okay. Uh, Seatbelt laws. Do you know there's an economist who argues that um, the, the best way to have uh, traffic safety is to build cars with a giant spike? <laughs> coming right out of the steering wheel. And the argument for that is that you put, uh, put seatbelts in the cars, and what do people do? Drive faster. Drive faster. Woohoo! I'm invulnerable. I'm in a tank. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, so what they do is they drive faster, and it hasn't reduced mortality among motorists, but who pays the price for people driving faster? Pedestrians, pedestrians cyclists, a squirrel, who knows? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very bad for all this kind of stuff. And, and, of course, what's happened is because the government has mandated all these mileage things, too, cars have basically become eggshells, right? So there's a lot more uh, danger being in a car now. I mean, I remember driving as a car in cars with kids. I mean, it, it really felt like you could take Normandy with these things, you know? You slam the door and the... <laughs> they were cool. Um, but now you're basically riding around in a soap bubble on wheels that can go 400 miles an hour. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, so yeah, I mean, and of course, car safety was getting much better as a result of consumer demand, um, and uh, so then it became a big problem that had to be solved by the government. And then, of course, what happens is when the government steps in to solve a, solve a problem that's almost solved, is it makes it intractable, right? I mean, with poverty, right? Post-war period up until the 1960s, 
10, 15% reduction in the real poverty rate, not like relative, like it didn't go down at 10, 15%. It went down a percentage point in absolute terms. And then socialized uh, nonsense comes in. And, you know, everybody, I can't believe people think it's cool or, or modern or hip to be left. You know, they always get this, it's this city TV thing. Does anyone, you know, they all like the little home rim glasses, you know, the funky weird shoes and the, the flappy shirts. And like, I'm, I'm on the left, man, I'm hip. It's like, dude, you know in King Lear there's a line that says, ah, the best society or something like that, that distribution should undo excess and each man have enough. You know, that, that you just, you know, oh, we've got a bunch of people at a table and these people have too much food. These people have too little food. One scoop here and oh, everybody's got enough. If Shakespeare was writing about it in the 16th century, it's not hip anymore. <laughs> That's old school. So, um, I'd like to, any other questions or comments so far or examples? Workplace safety. Workplace safety. Poverty. Yeah, poverty. Yeah, poverty programs, sure. Workplace safety for sure. Broadband internet. Broadband internet. Yeah, they're talking about all kinds of right and all these people in rural communities must have broadband internet, which didn't exist ten years ago. Hey, they deserve their porn too. <laughs> it's tough out there on the sticks. I mean, at least for the sake of the cows. Let's have them down a little faster. That's all I'm saying. Anybody here from the country? I'm sorry, but that's such a, that's such a, well, okay, so, sorry, I, Chris Christopherson and I apologize. Um, no, yeah, so it's almost being solved, right, although Canada has got, like, I think they were chastised recently, the Canadian government, for providing third world levels of, of access. I mean, it's ridiculously slow. Uh, Mike was saying, how fast was, was your internet? Oh, God, it's like five, uh, five, five megs a second up and 25 megs 30. a second, 30 megs a second download. Yeah. I mean, you basically have to stand in front of a computer with a catcher's mitt. It's so fast. And here, I mean, you're struggling to get a third of that. It's crazy. Um, okay, so uh, any other questions or comments? We have another example. Housing. Yeah, affordable housing. Affordable housing. Yeah, and it's weird, you know, because the government says that it wants affordable housing. Do you know that the square footage property tax on an apartment is higher than a house? <laughs> Development charges of up to $50,000 per house. Uh, development charges and what does that mean? They charge the developer. But is it like permits and no, taxes? And no, this is on top of all the permits. Oh, on top of all the permits. Yes. yes. Development yeah. yeah. charges for five thousand dollars for a, uh, a a retirement home with just one room, up to fifty thousand dollars for a single family. And what's what's it what's it called? Just it's called a development charge. A development charge. You do the developing, we'll do the charging. That sounds about equal. That sounds about right. They want to do things coming out of the developer's profits because it's a pass-through cost. Oh, yeah, right. Because the developer's just sitting on a mound of money. and you know, Absolutely. But most of the conservation of housing, they want affordable housing, and they don't want the prices of houses to drop at the same time. Right, yeah, because people don't know so much about that, right? I mean, that the government has a huge investment or interest in raising the price of housing because that ups the property taxes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and do you know also, and I mentioned this at the last Mises event, I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, there's a lot of issues around U.S. housing. Do you know a lot of people, they weren't just stupid and couldn't read, okay, they'd gone to government schools, but they weren't just stupid and couldn't read, like, the fine print, but they actually were getting into very expensive houses, not out of greed, but because that's where the good schools were, right? So people think you get sort of free public schools, but you have to buy your way, you have to bribe your way into getting to those decent public schools to your kids by buying houses way outside your possible price. Yes, sir? Actually, recognize that they don't see that as the problem. They see the problem that, like, the best example being Elizabeth Warren, who actually has. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I know, I know. <laughs> but she, she actually 
actually says there's a problem with um, education in the U.S. because people have to buy the more expensive houses in more expensive neighborhoods. You have to think about it. Who's subsidizing uh, your mortgage? And who's running the schools? Um, and like you're telling me that the problem of free market causing inequality for the poor. Yeah, at a pretty personal level, she really gives me the creeps. Yeah. She seems like somebody who's like super nice up front and then goes home and six forks in her can. She seems to me that kind of person. Like it's way too pleasant to demean her up front for that to be any core to core thing. Anyway, just she's really creepy. Um, all right. So sorry, I'll. Useful so far. Okay. So here's another example of. Um, What percentage, let's take a, a bit of a turn here, what percentage of, in, uh, of human diseases are caused by mosquitoes and other airborne nasties? In a state of nature, like prior to DDT, it was 80%. 80% of illnesses came from this guy. No, 80% of illnesses came to our patient zero. Brad Pitt. Anyway. Uh, um, Eighty percent. Uh, actually, let me read you the direct quote. It's not a word here. I'm not too familiar with. Percent. Eighty no. percent uh, of all infectious diseases affecting humans are carried by insects or other small arthropods. What the hell is an arthropod? By the way, I could have just said insects, right? It's the internet. Dumb it down. Um, it said these scorches, which have killed billions of people, include bubonic plague, yellow fever, typhus, dengue fever, Chagas disease. Anyone? that make you paint in a very abstract way? I don't know. <laughs> no, sorry, let's check out. Uh, African sleeping sickness. Uh, elephantiasis. I assume that's... Uh, Trypanosomiasis. No? I don't know what that is, but I feel dirty. Viral encephalitis. That's, that's not good, right? Leishmaniasis. Phalariasis, uh, and most deadly of all, malaria. Uh, insects also cause or contribute to mass starvation by eating approximately, in an untreated agricultural environment, approximately 40% of your crops are going to be eaten or destroyed by insects. Right? So, magical stuff, DDT, first synthesized by a grad student in the 19th century, finally made available through the development of its commercial potential in the 1930s. I mean, I don't think anyone here is old enough to, to know or, or recognize what it was like beforehand. But, I mean, malaria is just an ungodly. Uh, affliction of mankind. I mean, in the South, in the U.S., at 10% per year, people would be afflicted by malaria. It was devastating to the economy. That's why they had the slaves. <laughs> Too tired to make it. Go do it. And um, uh, with the introduction of uh, DDT, right, you know, you spray just a little bit. At six months, your house is free of insects. Um, uh, two, two cases per year would show up after they did this. Uh, of course, in, in Europe, uh, got rid of it. And, and in Africa and, and in Asia and so on, uh, it was an uh, unbelievable change that occurred with the uh, with DDT. I mean, there's nothing that compares to it in terms of its ability to just keep insects at bay. So who was the sworn enemy of DDT? Who here Rachel listens Carson. to Joni Mitchell? Sorry? Uh, Rachel Carson. Rachel Carson, right, the silent spring lady. Um, I won't sing it, but you know that song from, uh, is it Big Yellow Taxi? Yeah. But how does it go? Hey, paradise. Yeah, no, that bit, there's just, um, hey, farmer, hey, farmer, uh, put away your DDT now. Leave me the spots. Oh, give me the spots on the apples, but leave me the birds and the bees. Yeah. Because you really want to go for your environmental information to somebody who smokes. Um, but so, of course, the myth is out there that says, oh, when you see 
without DDT, there's just a few little spots on your apple, but all the birds will die, all the birds. Right, so Rachel Carson put forward this book. She tried to sell it to a, a magazine, and they wouldn't. Uh, and so unfortunately, she had to go through no fact-checking, because magazines have legal response and fact-check. So she published a, a, got the book published full of wildly inaccurate information, misinformation. And, I mean, I haven't read it, because I try not to put my face into evil too much. Um, it leaves, like, wells and blotches and stuff. Uh, but the book is unholy. I, I mean, the lies. It talks about, you know, it's, it's a subtle carcinogen that worms its way into your body and causes it's a subtle destruction. I think she was actually just referring to her prose. But um, <laughs> she also said that it thinned out the eggs uh, of birds and that she had this whole fictional fairy tale of a town with no spring because the birds couldn't sing <laughs> sort of stuff. In, I mean, it was all nonsense. There's no carcinogenic aspects that have ever been proven what they do is they, they load the dice, right? I mean, if you feed rats enough of anything, they'll get sick, right? Um, and so what they did was they, you know, pumped DDT up the uh, asses of rats until the rats exploded, and they said, oh my God, it's bad for you, which is like saying, I, I dropped a brick on your mouse, and your, your mouse died, so your house is out to kill you. <laughs> Makes no sense at all. Uh, and, and, so, and they also said that if you put DDT in water, it'll destroy the capacity of life to regenerate itself. It's a cataclysmic world. It, it, it kills photosynthesis. The algae will die with the algae, the fish, the sharks, us, everything. The moon explodes and we'll all learn. You may remember this from the global warming predictions. Um, <laughs> and so they, they put all of this stuff out there. And of course, it was all nonsense. Um, the guy who actually did... Actually, let me give you the facts here. Because the guy who did the experiment on DDT... Wretched. Oh, Uh, so, yeah, he, he said um, the maximum solubility of DDT in seawater is only 1.2 parts per billion. And he says, but at 500 parts per billion, bad things can happen. <laughs> I mean, it's 400 times what could possibly be dissolved. So in order to get this, he had to not use seawater, but sea salt water and alcohol, because you could dissolve more into alcohol, including your liver if Reverend gets his way later. Um, <laughs> but... Um, so, uh, so Carson claimed that DDT was doing all of this stuff, but it's, it's not, not, none of it was true. So um, the governments uh, banned DDT, right? Because, you know, whenever there's a moral hysteria, you always know that something good is about to get crushed. You know, that's, that's always, you know, in the stories, they're always chasing an ogre. They're not. They're chasing some beautiful dancer, you know, who's helping humanity with fairy dust, and they're just going to put a big, giant stegosaurus foot in our head. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so in Ceylon, uh, DDT had cut malaria cases from millions per year in the 1940s down to 17 cases. I mean, and malaria is seriously bad stuff. I mean, obviously it kills, it debilitates, it, it stays with you forever. Um, in a little... Okay, this, this, I mean, these figures blow my mind, mostly because we don't know them, or at least I didn't. Uh, so in two decades, right, from the sort of 1940s to the 1960s, how many guess... Guess how many deaths DDT is estimated... By independent studies to prevent it. Tens of millions. It's like in the hundreds of billions, isn't it? 500 million. 500 million deaths. 12 World War IIs. Right? 89 Holocausts. I mean, it's a half a billion people. I mean, that's as many people as died by governments in the 20th century. So there's twice as many now. Um, 
And so there was a whole court case about this, and this Judge Sweeney, uh, he, he wrote, he said, the uses of DDT under the registration involved here do not have a deleterious effect on freshwater fish, estuary organisms, wild birds, or other wildlife. DDT is not a carcinogenic hazardous to man. DDT uh, is not a mutagenic or tetragenic hazard to man. I think that means they don't change into robots that get lasers. Okay, I'm not a scientist. Um, and around the, of course, so they banned it in America. And why did they ban it in America? Because malaria is not a problem. See? As soon as you've solved the problem, there's moral hysteria. Moral hysteria means they're about to crush something wonderful and the problem has always been solved. Moral hysteria about poverty means that we're about to eradicate poverty. Moral hysteria about child labor means we're about to eradicate child labor. Moral hysteria about workplace injuries means that workplace injuries are seriously declining and about to be eliminated. It's like there are so many people who feed off screwing up the human condition that if you take away screw-ups in the human condition, they're out of a market. It's just like Comey. This trip six years ago, and then all of a sudden there's Comey 2012. Is that guy back? The, the, the filmmaker? No, no. Because he, uh, he uh, pounded the bishop on a sidewalk or something like that. Well, you know, it's pretty stressful. You know, when that cold eye of media comes on you, it's not always the most pleasant thing in the world. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, so so whenever a problem, this is and this is really important, right? Because if if we understand that moral hysteria means a problem is about to be solved, that's an indicator. Because right now we we're not we, but most people think that when there's moral hysteria, it's because there's a big problem that really needs our attention. What it means is that somebody's income is about to go out, right? And we'll, we'll uh, any questions about this? I just want to finish. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the interesting thing is they replaced DDT much more highly toxic chemicals that actually wipe out flocks of birds at a time. That is the first time I think it's ever happened with a government program. <laughs> <laughs> they make it over that. So government program comes up with more dangerous birds. For now, U.S. wind farms wipe out 400,000 birds a year. Right. Right. Or square foot at that. It's not farms. And actually, the, the pesticides being banned has caused the resurgence of bed bugs throughout the yeah, a lot of lefties don't mind DDT when they've got lice in their bed, right? Okay so you see the yellow rice in Asia, it's killing uh, children because uh, India doesn't dare to uh, introduce genetic, uh, genetically modified rice. Right. Yeah, the stuff that's <laughs> resistant to pesticides, right? Yeah. They're afraid that they can't treat The birds are voters. The birds aren't are voters. Right, the birds aren't voters. And interestingly enough, when they did a study, right, so the whole decade from the 40s to the 60s, the bird population in the U.S. increased at the time of Rachel... See, this is how weird it is. This is how we live in language, not in reality. Rachel Carson can write this compelling, you know, obviously a very good, evil writer, uh, wrote this whole book about how bird populations are going to get decimated. Nobody notices that it's like Alfred Hitchcock movie out there, right? I mean, it's like birds flying all over the place. <laughs> they must be faking it with mirrors. Smart little bastards. Well, and I'm, I, that, that, that's so debatable. Let's talk about the, the trade-off. Yeah, okay, but so he says eggshell thinning, is that what you mean? Yes. So eggshell thinning is a potential problem. This is, you know, from a couple of different articles. If you find different stuff, let me know and I'll, I'll put it out there. But it should not be overstated. The levels of DDT required for malaria control are much less than those required for crop dusting as practiced in the 1950s. Furthermore, the problem does not affect every bird species. Indeed, for some species, there is reason to believe that DDT has an overall beneficial effect by protecting them from the insect-borne diseases. 
that are the prim- are primary cause of bird mortality. In fact, dogs doused with DDT were healthier because the parasites were removed from their innards uh, and so on. So, so I, agree, I agree with you. Don't ban it and bring in more stuff, but it's not, we're not going to win any arguments with leftists if we don't acknowledge reality. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I agree, and that's why I'm saying. Like, it, but the, the thinning of the eggshells is not inconsequential. But if it's just used for not crop dusting, but just for the malaria control, it's going to have no effect on the birds. Okay. Uh, that's that's what the science says, anyway. Because the American, um, let's just see here. I got a, uh, a a pretty good quote here. Oh yeah. So in 1970, the National Academy of Sciences in the U.S issued a report, because they were trying to not have it banned, right? Because they're like, oh my God, this is going to be catastrophic, right? Uh, And this is what they said. I'll just read a short paragraph, but it's really important. To only a few chemicals does man owe as great a debt as to DDT. It has contributed to the great increase in agricultural productivity, while sparing countless humanity from a host of diseases, most notably perhaps strep typhus and malaria. Indeed, it is estimated that in little more than two decades, DDT has prevented 500 million deaths due to malaria that would otherwise have been inevitable. Abandonment of this valuable insecticide should be undertaken only at such time and in such places as it is evident that the prospective gain to humanity exceeds the component, the consequent losses. Um, as of this writing, all available substitutes for DDT are both more expensive per crop year and decidedly, as your point goes, more hazardous. So great, there is no magic solution. There are trade-offs, right? But so the question is then, how did the U.S. and other countries, which could you could ban DDT in the U.S. because malaria was done? Right, so it's like, hey, we're done with it. You know, like how we get all mad at India and China for having smokestacks. <laughs> did you see the 19th century? Anyway. Um, so how did how did they get everyone else to stop using it? I mean, so you're in Ceylon and you're saving a million lives a year with DDT. What do you care if America bans it? They bribe the governments. You've got it. What do they have? Force and stolen money. How noble. Yes, they bribe the governments. Isn't it I don't, I don't, I'm no international legal expert, but I mean, Portugal legalized drugs, the U.S. can't do squat about it. Uh, it's not through that, it is through the foreign aid program. They, 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 that's the reason they did not legalize it, they decriminalized it. Decriminalized it, yeah. No, they, they basically... They don't dare to say that it's legal because that would have international But at least according to this, the, 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 you could only get the foreign aid if you weren't going to use DDT. Now, of course, any reasonable leader would say, screw the foreign aid, my people's lives are more important. But since those remain largely fictional, uh, they took the money and people started dying again. Um, estimated that since the DDT ban, 100 million more people have died in Africa than otherwise would have lived. 100 million more people have died than otherwise would have lived. We don't hear about that. The whole progress of the capital was not going to rise it's all living today inspired. And the opportunity costs of all of those people, and, and uh, I mean, this is one of the reasons Africa remained mired. Because it's not just, I mean, it's not just that it's all, all of the, the uh, uh, all of the pathogens that get carried by these insects and arthropods. Uh, they are all uh, incredibly dangerous, and it's just something you don't hear about. I don't know if it's because they're a foreign country or a different color or something like that, but it's just this is invisible. Uh, I guess nobody can fight Joni Mitchell. It's, she's a superhero. So I guess what you're saying is the Nazis weren't subtle enough. And couldn't write glitchy little books. Yeah, yeah. No, if you really want to do harm to humanity, uh, be a good artist uh, with a with a, a lack of knowledge and a weirdly driven emotional pathologies. Um, I mean, who who writes the history of the nineteenth century? Uh, industrialism is Charles Dickens, right? 
I mean, that's what people go to for facts. I mean, people were in factories. The children were in factories, not in the ground. But all people think is that. But there's this weird thing. What's my time? What am I done? Okay, five more minutes. How much time do you think so far? Okay, a few more minutes. Sorry, we're getting a long time. Okay. Um, people, I know this is a. I'm sort of a newish dad. My daughter's three. And how many people here? Parents? I mean, have parents. Okay. So, um, do you notice this weird thing? Like, so when you're reading stories to your daughter, everything is backwards. Right, so nature is fluffy. You know, nature is cuddly. Nature is, you know, like round apple cheek little bunnies hopping to play with the tigers and stuff like that, right? And, and sorry? The three little bears. The three little pigs and, and all this. And, you know, the bears are all cute and cuddly and, you know, put out oatmeal because that's what bears eat. Uh, and so, and I really think that, you know, when you look at the irrationality of environmentalism, which, you know, is different from wanting nice and clean stuff. I think it has a lot to do with just the way kids... I think if you don't outgrow that kind of stuff... Like, so my daughter, you know, we're starting to go out into nature rather than just read about it in books and start to explain things about her. It's like, Daddy, why do the frogs jump away when we come close? It's because they're afraid we're going to peck them and eat their eyes out and swallow them whole. And yeah, I don't quite put it that way. <laughs> uh, what I do is I grab a stuffed animal. No. Um, but, but we have this... And, and uh, you know, it's got this other book where, you know, this, this bear, he, he, he's, he wants to hug trees. That's his thing, you know. He just wants to hug trees, and then a man comes along, and he, he, a man wants to cut the tree down and kill the tree. And and so the bear goes up, and gives it a hug to the man, and I'm afraid to turn the next page. <laughs> it's like a pop up with the head flying. <laughs> and then he rips his entire scalp off. Um, and it, you know the irony, and, and you, you, when you get any kind of brains in your head, you can't. You know, it's like it's printed on paper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to cut down the paper. To... <laughs> it's not an ebook. Anyway, so we get this weird distorted view, right? So the pe- people are always not so good, but nature is so kind and, and gentle and fluffy and so on. And there's just this weird thing. And it's all, I'm trying to give my daughter a more realistic, you know, I'm saying this is a fun story, but they actually will eat each other. I mean, nature's a bitch and a half. Nature's horrible. You know, nature, we talk about pollution, man. The Middle Ages were pollution. You know, I mean, you're not going to have to eat. You've got the bubonic plague. You, I mean, it's horrible, right? That's pollution. You know, what we got now, I'll, I'll take it. Um, but we have these weird distorted ideas of nature and our relationship to it. And I think a lot of it just really comes from just people being read all this cute, cuddly nonsense when they're kids and somehow growing up with this idea that, you know, animals cooperate and they like to play together and, you know, they all go over for tea. And, you know, it's just like, no, they're all just hunting and killing. They're just monsters. They're little sociopaths. I mean, nature is just a long serial killer documentary. And <laughs> All right, so let's just uh, end up with this last, last example of how when things are getting better, there's moral hysteria, and then the solutions are blocked, are stopped, and the problem usually becomes centralized and worse, right? So poverty is declining, great society programs come in, poverty stabilizes, but in fact it's getting worse because you've got a permanent underclass now. Poverty used to be more like this, now it's, you're stuck, right? And, and also if you include the national debt, the poor are really badly off because they're in an unstable situation, right? When the bottom falls out and they can't pay the bills, got a whole bunch of people unprepared for change who are going to have to adapt very quickly. <clears throat> so, FDA. Sorry, this is the big, you know, non-Canadian example, but uh, we had mosquitoes. I know that. I went up north. Um, all right. According to 
Uh, this is a, a lady uh, who's been on my show, uh, Dr. Mary Ruart. Uh, it's my name, look easy. <laughs> okay, so as many as one out of three people who've died from disease in the last 40 years has died unnecessarily, according to her research, uh, because of a law passed by Congress in 1962. Uh, so, does anybody remember the big health, scary, panicky thing in the early 1960s? The name of the drug that it caused the pregnant, right? Yeah, thalidomide. You know, in case you know about thalidomide, right? Okay, so what's the story? What's the story with morning sickness. Morning sickness, right? So yeah, for yeah, because you've got morning sickness, so then you would take this uh, this drug, and uh, unfortunately, for some, some small percentage of babies, they would be born with deformed limbs and so on. Uh, the number was, I think, about 12,000 babies born in uh, Europe where this drug was. And uh, in, in America and in Canada, it was, it was uh, uh, only, like, you know, you got the, the doctor will give you a few samples. They only had samples, so it really wasn't a couple hundred, I think it was, in the U.S., and probably a much smaller number here in Canada, uh, of, of babies who were born with this. Uh, and, of course, it's tragic and it's horrible and so on. The science of how medicines affected a growing fetus was, dare I say, in its infancy. Uh, uh, back then, and uh, so it really wasn't known. It wasn't like this was, you know, they didn't change or cheat, you know, like they do with psychotropic drugs now, right? You know, this thing where they, the FDA says, you can run as many tests as you want, just submit the two best ones to us. <laughs> By that rule, I'm a gambler who never loses, because I can go gamble 100 times, twice I win. I'm infallible, right? I mean, it's just, but according to the bell curve, you're eventually going to come up with something that says something that's not true. But, um, uh, also, uh, so, so the, the, what they put all these rules in, in place to, to vet and triple vet and quadruple vet all of these drugs. And, you know, the whole challenge of economic thinking is the hidden costs, right? It's what goes on behind the curtain that, that's important, right? So you all know this thing where the government has created a thousand jobs, right? Everyone's like, ooh, a thousand more jobs. We're plus a thousand, right? And all those people who get those jobs are really happy. I have a job. Government did me good, right? But what's missing? The 10,000 jobs that otherwise would have been created. And the people who didn't get a job, they can't say, those bastard government goons stole my job, because they don't know. You can't trace that back, right? And it's the same thing. So people say, well, you see, we're really vetting our drugs thoroughly now. Because, you know, since then, there have been no recalls. Um, but the opportunity costs are catastrophic, right? So um, she's done some, uh, some research, some pretty serious, and you can Google her and talk to her, she's very, uh, very uh, happy to talk about this kind of stuff. So, um, these amendments to the drug approval process, to go from lab to market, went from four and a half years to 14 and a half years. Why is that so significant? I mean, other than the cost, extra cost of development. The people you would have saved. Well, the people you would have saved, there's something else too. Well, yeah, of course. There's no chance it's going to be hundred million dollars to develop a drug. You can't, you know. What else? What are the other costs? You deter the R&D. You deter R&D. Yeah. So for for smaller populations of sick people, uh, but, uh, it, it, but you know, for cancer, sure, right. But for people who've got some obscure liver ailment, you, there's no possible way to cost justify it. Cuts into your patent. It's a huge, huge problem. Uh, if it takes you 15 years, on average, could be longer. You don't know ahead of time. That's the problem. Right? It could be 20. You've got a 25-year drug patent. It's going to take you 20 years after you patented to get it to market. That's going to affect your spreadsheet quite a bit, right? Which is why you get boner pills. 
<laughs> no, seriously. I mean, you know, so apparently there's a big issue. And so you get boner pills, but you don't get stuff which heals more obscure liver ailments. This, in fact, this woman she was working, she was at Upjohn, she was working on cures for liver ailments, affected 100,000 people every year. FDA, the guy, the guy at the FDA was saying, come on, give me this stuff. We've got nothing to offer these people. But then she went, tried calculating the numbers with the business people, and there's no way that they could make it work. Sorry, you were saying? The drugs will also be more expensive to recoup the cost. Yeah, they'll have to be more expensive to recoup the cost. And also, you would then have to have a big legal department to prosecute the knockoffs and so on. So, um, so the amendments, uh, they, they've tried to calculate how many drugs were prevented from going into market that later proved dangerous in other areas. And they've saved 7,000 lives since 1962. Now, to those 7,000 people, that's not so insignificant, right? Uh, uh, um, now, what about the number? So 7,000, 7,000 up. Uh, what's, what kind of uh, hole are we looking at, do you think, of people who were denied drugs that are legal and safe to use in other countries but were denied in North America? 100,000. Millions. 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 4.7 million. Now, I would argue that for a government program, that's not bad. <laughs> no, no, no. There's something on the plus side. It's 4.7 million minus 7,000. Usually you don't get the minus 7,000, so this is hugely successful as far as government programs go. But that's not all of it. Um, there have also been estimates based upon the amount of R&D uh, that was occurring before this and the amount of R&D that's not occurring after this and the amount of R&D that resulted in life-saving medications being available. This is just the calculations of known drugs that were denied to people through the government action. Anyone want to guess about the R&D loss and its effect upon mortality? 15 million people. One five. 15 million people. Again, we're talking about half of World War II. The problem is, of course, that people, they don't know this, right? I mean, if you take a drug and your arm falls off, you're like, shit. <laughs> I'm glad I had speed done. Um, but if you don't get a medicine because of some legislation that was passed 20 years ago, you don't know that. There's no alternate universe that you can compare to. This is why the state is so dangerous. Well, one of the many reasons why it's so dangerous. Now, of course, drug safety was vastly improving. This is how you know when the moral hysteria hits it's because the problem is almost solved and people are going to step into blank block <laughs> the, uh, whatever solution is coming in because they're dependent upon. All right, so the FDA comes. When drug safety was improving, the FDA is running out of things to do. So how do you make drugs more dangerous? Well, you raise the regulatory requirements. This provokes regulatory capture. You all know this yeah. phrase, right? So... When you start making things more difficult for pharmaceutical companies, pharmaceutical companies will start to run your organization and have it bend to their will. And then they use it, right? There's no bigger fan of statism than a large corporation, right? Yeah. So they use this then to block other entrants to the market, create a monopoly, and you've got the revolving door between the regulators and the companies, right? So like in the whole financial mess, right? I mean, <laughs> the SEC. Do you, ever, do you ever watch Wall Street? You know that old movie from the 90s? Was it 80s or 90s? 80s, 80s right? I just remember there was, this, no, there was this one scene where there was this guy who, from the SEC who was walking up. He was like 350 pounds. He was walking up with some spreadsheet waving it around, right? The really smart guys in, in the financial industry don't go into the SEC, right? I mean, it's the bottom 10% again, right? They're either going to be teachers or regulators. That's, you know, and, and can they outsmart the, the super genius math 
computer brain heads who are out there? Of course not, right? I mean, and also they have no incentive to, right? The Bernie Madoff scandal was, what, 10 years ahead of time? They were saying this is impossible. He can't possibly doing this. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's like, well, we'll get to that. But right now, you know, I've got to try and get some more conflict of interest to pay raises. So, sorry, sir. They've restricted their access to porn? Yes, sir. See, I'd like to give free porn to all government regulators. <laughs> I'll, I'll even do it. I'll make it. Okay. It's a kinky subset. Libertarian porn, porn, search for it. Um, no, I would, because that would give them something to do other than regulating. I mean, that would be great, you know, just... Keep your hands busy. Don't die. Don't die. You know? Just do whatever you got to do. Just don't interfere with us. You know, I'll give you a whole porn biosphere if you need. Just stay out of my face. Um, I mean, it's it's it, in the in the U.S. It is here too, right? I mean, it's it's really chilling, right? So the cancer patients, um, you know, obviously facing the Grim Reaper coming down the escalator. They they wanted the rights to to purchase drug drug that had great promise was in development, right? I mean, this is, you know, this is how lunatic there are lots of comedians who talk about, you know, when they're giving a guy the death penalty injection, they're given an alcohol swab. <laughs> <laughs> Only in the government. It's a regulation. Well, we're getting an infection. That's in most pockets, casket. But, but so, like, because the government is saying, well, the, the, the drug might be dangerous. It's like, but the cancer is more dangerous for me. It's like... Uh, anyway, so um, so they tried. They tried to go to the federal government and say, "Look, we, we it's a free market exchange. We want to buy this drug. We'll sign every waiver you want. I'm going to be dead in six months, according to my doctor. This thing is going to give me a 30% chance of survival." Um, it showed reasonable signs of either slowing the progression of their illness or putting their cancer into remission altogether. Court ruled that these individuals had no constitutional right to purchase a drug on the free market that could possibly save them. The Supreme Court refused to hear the case. I mean. Status and kills. I mean, I've given you some numbers. I hope that are pretty horrifying, because we all know the numbers of the wars, right? There's a guy in Hawaii, a professor in Hawaii, who has um, runs a website tracking um, deaths by statism called Democide, usually democracy, right? And he calculates the famines, the concentration camps, the forced marches. He doesn't even include wars, and it's 260 million over the 20th century. Throw in wars, even half billion. Another half billion for DDT. I mean, soon we're starting to talk about some serious numbers. Right, so I think it's really important to understand that the numbers that we're talking about are, they stagger the imagination. What is it um, Stalin, I think, said? Because it's always good to quote Stalin to libertarian. He said that, uh, you know, a single death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic, right? But we're talking about hundreds of millions of lives. I mean, all people, all like you and I, all facing the same fear of death, the same desire, thirst for life. And this is all winked out. And what's so frustrating, to me at least, is when you look at the numbers. This stuff is being solved by freedom, mutualism, trade, entrepreneurship, our delight in human ingenuity and win-win negotiations. And whenever we're about to solve a goddamn problem, people step in and screw up the solution. It's so, it's like the myth of Sisyphus, you know, that Camus wrote about, this whole thing, guy's trying to roll the rock up the hill, and every time he gets to the top, it comes back down again. It's like we keep trying to solve these foundational problems within human society, poverty, disease, opportunity, education. You know what the literacy rate was in America, in Massachusetts, before government schools? 
Because there were still some people running for office, they didn't know how to write, but everyone else, right? And, and if you look at the books in the 19th century in America, I mean, try to make your way through Moby Dick without a shot of caffeine to the eyeball, it's tough. It's a big book, it's a tough book. Thomas Paine's books were incredible. I mean, that stuff is complicated. The Sam Spooner, Bastia, they've eaten this stuff up. I mean, people sort of fade out after Archie comics these days. <laughs> no, seriously. The American literacy rate has plummeted. I mean, even if you count government literacy standards, you, see, you can just look at the internet to see what kind of tests they were given to people in grade six a hundred years ago. I mean, it's crazy how much they do. And this is why they were learning uh, Latin and Klingon and Elvish. And <laughs> it was the internet. I'm not sure how good the sources are, but it seems incredible to me. Um, and so it's like every time, oh, look, we solved the problem of literacy. Let's get government schools in. Oh, we're just about to solve the problem of poverty. Let's get a poverty program in. Oh, we've solved the problem of peace. We've had 100 years of peace in Western Europe for the first time in human history. Largest continental area without war ever in human history. Ah, government solved that, right? World War I, yes. So, Aragorn, go ahead, okay. get some sun. Here's a fun, here's a fun question, and, and I thought I had an example until the latest, let's regulate the internet out of existence efforts. Um, but are there really good examples of problems we've almost solved that the government didn't interfere in, that then did get solved, that we can point to a counterexample that sort of shows it. And I thought we had it. We had a, That's a great question. largely, largely uh, voluntary regulation by means of, hey, here's a good protocol. If you want to use it, you can too. Everybody gets Oh, yeah. Well, TCP, TCP, IP, uh, the internet, all of the data exchanges that goes along. Protocols. It's, it's exactly like that. There was no government whatever. Uh, in, in terms of in terms of enforcing that standard, right? Um, and then now you start to have you know laws in place to make sure there are holes in it, to make sure encryption is not sufficiently in place. Right. So I thought we had an example, and maybe we don't. Well, you, you but, will but briefly. Other yeah, but if it's important for us to know about, the government will have screwed it up, yeah. right? Or uh, if you look at the rating system on eBay. Sure. Right? I mean, people say, how could you have a society without a government? It's like eBay is 350,000 people making their job off it. It's one of the biggest, it's basically the biggest single employer uh, in the free market in the world. And there's no government. There's no court system. Nobody's going to adjudicate over 50 bucks for the government court. Or Visa is an incredible dispute resolution organization. Right? I was talking to a guy, I was speaking in Vegas, because, you know, it's a tough job. I was speaking in Vegas, and uh, a lawyer was talking about how he went to South America, and he, you know, some they said, oh, it's you know half price, and then he said, oh, it was two minutes past five. They charged him full price for some big meal he went to. And so, what's he going to do? Get back to the states and call the Bolivian cops and say, listen, you know, I went to a restaurant, and then nothing's going to happen, right? But he went phone Visa, and Visa dealt with the restaurant and ended up refunding him his money. Done. One phone call. You ever try to get justice from the government with one phone call? <laughs> Years and years and years, right? So there's tons of examples of how these things are resolved without coercion, without compulsion. I mean, they really go on and on forever. Uh, but yeah, something like the development of the internet is uh, something that there's no, uh, there's no email standard. Or how about cell phone uh, providers carrying each other's data? The government doesn't order them how to do that or whether to do that. They do that because it's profitable. So there's lots of examples of this kind of spontaneous order. I was talking to someone just before we came in about how you know people say anarchy, uh, it means no rules. And that's true except for one letter. It just means no rulers. There's one R. Take that out. You get rules. 
doesn't mean no rules. It means no rulers. Because when you have rulers, you have no rules. You have their rules. You have no rules. There are no rules in a state of society. Right? There's books out there that say, basically, you commit three felonies a day, whether you know it or not. And there are no rules. They can get you for anything they want at any time. It's chaos, right? Ayn Rand said this too, right? A dictatorship is not with brutal rules. It's with no rules. That's the problem. You don't know what the, what the system is. So a common law, of course, another example of spontaneously developed legal systems and so on. There's lots of examples of that, but if it's important and it's about to solve a significant human problem, the government will step in, like folic acid. Right? Who here has been pregnant? Yeah. <laughs> pregnant horse. Um, but, uh, you know, it was illegal to advertise that folic acid was good for fetuses. Because a vitamin manufacturer is not going to pay $100 million to sell some vitamins, which the moment they do, since they have no patent of the folic acid, everyone else can do it too. So when vitamin companies tried to say to pregnant women, this will reduce, what is it, spina, spina bifida? Cystic, yeah, spina bifida, I think. This will reduce, like, or eliminate, right? Tens of thousands of children born with this terrible disease because the government would not let vitamin manufacturers tell pregnant women about something so easy, so cheap, and so essential to the health of their child. So you get problems that are about to be solved. There's a moral hysteria that comes up. And I don't know, it's hard to track where it comes from, right? But there's this moral hysteria that comes up. Oh my God, the Cuyahoga River's on fire! It's like, but yes, but less than it used to be. <laughs> Look at the bright spot, you know? Because occasionally we can see the shore. Um, but as soon as the problem... So I just really want to point out that as soon as you see moral hysteria in society, I can almost guarantee you, please email me, host at freedomainradio.com. Get any counterexamples, whatever, we'll try and shoehorn them into the theory or change the theory. But when you see moral hysteria, look for a problem that's about to be solved. And look for who's bringing the hysteria up. Because remember... When problems are solved, government logically should diminish. So how interested is in government in solving problems? Uh, is your local security force, uh, alarm force, whatever, are they hugely dedicated to eliminating crime? Of course not. You don't see a lot of ads for books on TV. Because nobody can read them anymore. 40% of college grads will never read another book in their life. It's true. It's true. It's astounding. Our, our unliteracy is... And of course, you know, they internet or whatever, right? But it's amazing. Sorry, somebody had a question? Oh, I was going to say, I think we solved the uh, acid rain that we stopped talking about. Yeah, and there were some hippies in the States who were like, yeah, man, I love it. <laughs> Sorry, cheesy joke. Cheesy joke. It's better with a rainbow wig or something like that. But yeah, you'll see, so, I mean, the, the, the constant keeping us in a state of anxiety and fear is why you can't actually solve these problems, right? If we run out of poor people, huge sections of the government have to close down. Well, but that's what the poverty programs do, right? They are, in fact, poverty programs. Yes. <laughs> Right. But they've never had, it, it's been open for 50, 60 years, never had a problem. So they used eminent domain and took two people's houses to make an exit. Right. So now, well, it could be a problem. Yeah, yeah. 
No, I mean, the, the manufacturer, I remember um, there was a brief moment of respite between the end of the Cold War and the war on terrorism. Remember that? Three weeks or so, where it's like, ooh, I like this planet. Every time. So I was chatting with a, 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 a woman once uh, in, and uh, on a plane, and she was, I think she was like 16 or whatever, and I was, we were talking about, you know, when I was growing up or whatever, because, you know, it's good to be that age. And uh, I was saying, you know, we were really scared of, of nuclear war or whatever, and she was like, yeah, you know, we're scared of Y2K. <laughs> wow, that's some hype, man. Global human nuclear war. Misprinted subway tickets. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for your time and attention.